The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where this week, as every week, we strive to give you the answers you need to pull the trigger, get started with your first real estate investment, or to help you build a bigger and better real estate investing business for your own financial future and that of your family. Today, being the last Wednesday of the month, is question and answer week. If you are a new listener, you probably don't know that the last Wednesday of almost every month is question and answer week, which is sort of an open mic day for folks who have been saving up questions about real estate investing. And the way that you get those questions asked is either by calling the studio, if you're listening to me in the greater Cincinnati area, you can make a local call at 772-9658. If you're listening to me online at wmkvfm.org, you can call our toll-free number 877-772-9658. You can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com. And any question that you might have about previous programs, about uh, just something you've been curious about, something in your own personal situation, are welcome uh, on question and answer day. Again, 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. A little later on in the program, we'll talk about some legislative things that are going on here in Ohio and throughout the country. But first, we're going to answer some questions that came in prior to the program from folks who get our weekly e-letter. You can get our weekly e-letter just by going to askvina.com and signing up for it. Askvina.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A dot com uh, offers you the opportunity to Sign up on our mailing list, which will get you a weekly email reminding you to tune in every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern, letting you know who our guest is, providing you with an article about something having to do with the topic that week, and just generally keeping you in touch with what is going on in the real-life real estate world. That's askvina.com. While you're there this week, you can also download a free webinar and ebook about how to get started in wholesaling. Again, that's askvina.com. Question here from Jordan, who is from 
Minneapolis. He says, I was listening to your interview with Ron Legrand from the April 9th, 2014 podcast, and I became stumped when I began to ask myself why a seller who is underwater in their mortgage would not just go the route of a short sale and then be done with it rather than hanging on for three to five years for a lease option with a new buyer to be found, making payments to the banks in the hopes that the buyer might or might not exercise his or her right to buy the house. It would make more sense to keep it simple and go through a short sale and move on. Please clarify. Well, Jordan, the answer to why would a seller let someone else live in his house and make payments rather than going through a short sale can really be boiled down to two words, and those words are credit score. There are an amazing amount of sellers out there who really by all sort of, I don't know, business rules should have let go of their house years and years ago because, uh, you know, if they're upside down right now, they were more upside down in 2009 and 2010 than they are right now. But they care about their credit and they care whether or not they have a fairly sizable hit to their credit score in the form of a short sale. And by the way, trying to negotiate a short sale is still not a sure thing. If they were to stop making their payments, which most banks are now requiring in order to do a short sale, uh, that alone would hurt their credit score. And then it may very well be that they wouldn't get any offers that were acceptable to the bank or that the bank uh, would not accept any potential short sale offers they had. And so they would go through a full-blown foreclosure. So it's a risky business to try to do a short sale for someone who uh, cares about their credit score. The short sale itself does lower their credit score, as do the delinquent payments. And frankly, in at least one sense, the lease option, even if it does not work, potentially could put them in a much better situation than they're in right now. Because remember, Jordan, if someone else is making their payment for them, or even making 95% of their payment for them so that instead of losing 100% of the payment every month, they're losing just a little bit of the payment every month. In three years or five years or 10 years, their loan will be lower and hopefully their house will be worth more. So kicking the can down the road, as it were, by lease optioning their properties can be a really good decision for some of these sellers uh, for the simple reason that time will lower their uh, loan balance and will raise, one hopes, the value of their home. Thank you very much for your question, Jordan. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. Taking your calls at 877-772-9658 or your questions via email at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And we're taking your questions. I'm not calling you and asking questions. You're calling me and asking questions. What are you waiting for? 877-772-9658 is the toll-free number here at the studio. Uh, You can also send a question to askvina at gmail.com. Anna writes, I am wanting to just do... I'm wanting to do just wholesaling, nothing else. I am aware of dealer status and tax implications somewhat. Should I let that stop me from only wholesaling? Do you have a concept of how much percent of each assignment fee would go to pay the taxes on the income? Anna, the uh, 
question of should you let the tax implications stop you from only wholesaling is no, that would that would not maybe be the thing that would stop you from only wholesaling. But effectively, the taxes that you pay on a wholesale deal absent any other tax planning that you might do are the equivalent of taxes you'd pay on a, on 1099 income. I mean, you pay tax and you're whatever your bracket is, plus you pay uh, the bike of Yudasuda, all the self-employment taxes. So it's not that much different than having a job where you're a 1099 contractor. Now, the thing is, there are some things that you can do uh, to reduce that tax bill legally, and you probably ought to rewind through our, uh, I, uh, through our iTunes podcast and find some of the interviews with John Heyer or some of the other tax folks that we've talked about to get into detail about that. It's going to mean that you have to set up an entity uh, to do this and then uh, do some things with the entity that convert some of your wholesale profits to taxes or to taxes to uh, salary and some to uh, um, effectively dividend income. Plus, of course, you want to keep very careful track of all of your expenses so that you can deduct all of those, any mailings you do, gas you use driving around, looking at deals, contracts you have printed, things like that. Uh, the question of how, what percent of each assignment fee would go to pay the taxes on the income is that it is an increasing number the more wholesale deals you do in a particular year you have a tax bracket based on your net income. And as that net income increases, so does that tax bracket. So, uh, you know, initially you might end up after even your uh, standard deductions paying only about 15 or 20 percent. And then as you exceed that amount, you might be at 30 percent. And then at some point you will be at some point sooner than you think. Uh, you could be at 50% taxes absent any other tax planning you might do. Now, the reason that folks who are, are wholesalers also do other things is really twofold. Number one, if you know how to go out and find those great deals, there are going to be a few of them that you look at and say, wow, you know, I don't, I, why, why would I assign this contract? This is, this is a great deal. It's a nice little rental. I'd like to keep it. Uh, or I'd like to, it's an easy, it's an easy fix and resell. So I'd like to fix it and resell it. So that's reason number one. But reason number two is that again, with appropriate entity setup and tax planning, uh, the uh, paper losses from your rental properties can offset uh, some of your wholesaling profits and allow you to pay less in taxes on that. But uh, on the whole, you're not going to pay any more in tax for being a wholesaler than you would for, I don't know, selling cars on a 1099 or something like that. So uh, I'd say no reason not to wholesale based on the tax implications of that. A question from Michael, who is from Pennsylvania. He says, I've had, I've had experience helping to manage rentals in my family's business in the past, but I've never directly invested in real estate myself. Now I am a first-time homebuyer looking to purchase and live in a two, three, or four family in a small city to which I am moving. I qualify for conventional financing, but have been, been studying creative financing as well. My chief concern is that I will miss some rehab expenses or overhead expenses as I evaluate properties. Do you have any advice for this? Do you have any more ge general advice? Either what about deal finding? 
the MLS seems a little light these days. Yes, the MLS is a little light these days. The the severe reduction in the number of bank-owned properties that are listed in the MLS has made it look like a wasteland in terms of how many properties, particularly in that kind of fixer-upper, you know, rental, uh, first-time homebuyer range, are available. So you're not imagining things there. Everybody in the country is experiencing that. I would say, Michael, that since you intend to owner-occupy this property, that you pick out some neighborhoods that you think you would like to live in and drive them and look for signs of uh, don't-wanters, you know, high grass, peeling paint, um, lots of mail overflowing the mailbox, uh, um, houses that just don't look very loved. And you can certainly write those owners a letter and say, uh, I'm looking for a place to live. It's such a nice little neighborhood. I was wondering if you would like to sell your house and see what they come back with. Uh, You can also, of course, go to some of the for sale by owner type Uh, websites that are out there and see who might have a property that is not listed in the multiple listing service. Although typically you're going to find that those are not listed because the seller is upside down. He's underwater. He can't afford to both sell the property and pay a commission and pay closing costs for a uh, buyer. So you may have some luck there negotiating something like a lease option or contract for deed uh, from that seller. And of course, as a home buyer, again, you're in a different position because you're going to say, I am going to move into this to this property, which might make it more attractive to a potential seller. Uh, in terms of missing rehab expenses or overhead expenses, that is a wonderful question that I wish more real estate investors thought about before they wrote the check to buy the property. Um, If you are not pretty good at evaluating properties on your own, by which I mean you feel like if you spend an hour, hour and a half in the property, you can see what's the matter with it, pay for a home inspection. They're going to cost you between $250 and $400, give or take. Uh, If you get a really good certified home inspector, they will find things that you just would never find. I mean, they're just trained to look for every minor thing in every system. Uh, I've I've had home inspectors look at houses that I had also looked at and find things that I didn't find. I mean, they they they, they do things like. Remember, there was an apartment building I was looking at, and it had one of these great big giant water heaters, and. The inspector noticed, which I did not, that the vent on the water heater, the thing that that um, out that releases overflow, was aimed toward the washing machine where the tenants would be standing doing their laundry, uh, which is just not a good thing. And that's you know that's such a minor little thing, not a huge expense to fix, but I absolutely missed it because I don't have that level of training. Um, make sure that you get somebody who's qualified. I don't know how it is in Pennsylvania, but all states do not have uh, any sort of testing or licensing for home inspectors. In a lot of states, you can just hang out a sign and say, I'm a home inspector. So you want someone who's certified by a professional organization, if at all possible. And in terms of the... um, in terms of the expenses, and I, I assume what you're talking about is, since you want a multifamily, you are, you are thinking about what is the income and expenses on the units you're not living in. 
uh, a real good way to find that out is to look at the current owner's tax returns for the last couple of years. Now, you don't need their entire tax return. You need their Schedule E for that property. And they will tell you what they told the IRS about what they were paying in utilities and insurance and repairs and maintenance and so on. Got to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt because if the property needs work, that means that they haven't been spending all the money they should have on maintenance and repairs. But that will get you a long way toward understanding what your uh, expenses are likely to be. And also things like uh, how many months the uh, units tend to stay vacant when they go vacant. So uh, thank you very much for your question, Michael. It's Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. You can send your questions to askvina at gmail.com or you can give me a call at 877-772-9658. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox. We are taking questions today either via phone at 877-772-9658 or via email at askvina at gmail.com. A question here, if I can get it all the way open on Gmail. Here we go. Uh, hi, Vina. I, and this is from, I'll, I'll just call him D. I'm not going to read his first name for reasons that you'll see here in a moment. Uh, hi, Vina. I'm at work. I really wish I could fire my boss today. And I assume he has his radio on. So I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, gu- I guess I could say your full name and then your boss might fire you. Uh, want to send this question, listen in when you put it on the show. Uh, all, my problem is getting leads on a shoestring budget. What do you recommend to improve my lead generation so I can fire my boss very soon? I think he's having a bad day at work. Uh, just between you and me, I only make $20,000 a year. So one great deal or a couple of good deals would help me be free from my job. Uh, so, um, that, that marketing on a shoestring budget thing is something that comes up very, very often, um, D and I, I, I understand it's a real problem. Like I'm, I'm in this kind of chicken or egg situation where I need to make some money so I can market and make some money, but you know, a lot of the best deals that you're going to find during your real estate investing life are just going to come from talking to people. You know, if you if you if you need to to send out some mail, as you know, I'm a strong proponent of driving for dollars. I think that is a great way to uh, identify ugly properties that people clearly don't want, or at least they can't really afford to keep them up. And simply driving around on a Saturday morning in some of these rental neighborhoods and sending a postcard to the to the owner of any house that you see that says hey I saw your house I was wondering if you wanted to sell it give me a call uh, can be very very fruitful but also how about going to a neighborhood where you'd like to own a rental or you'd like to do a rehab or something and just start knocking on doors. I know that sounds that sounds frightening and it probably sounds just oh so 20th century but I am telling you, if you go around and, and, and knock on some doors and talk to some people and just say, hey, this is a great neighborhood. I really I really like it here. Do you know anyone who wants to sell their house? We'll get you more information 
than you could just ever get. And I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've I've been someplace looking at a vacant house and one of the neighbors has come out and they've said, oh, are you going to buy that house? Thank goodness. It's been it's been like this for two years. And oh, by the way, uh, Mrs. Smith across the street, I know she just moved to Florida to be with her son. And I know they're trying to sell that house. And I look over and there's no for sale sign. It hasn't been listed, but the neighbor knows that they want to sell the house. So it's not going to happen with every single person that you knock on their door. There will be people who say, no, I don't know anything. And they close their door. Some of them will will say, well, I'd like to sell my house. And many of them will have information on other people who want to sell their houses. So uh, why don't you spend, you know, a Saturday afternoon knocking on doors in a neighborhood that you think is um, a possibility? Now, these are these are two very different neighborhoods, right? Because the driving for dollars, you're going to have the best luck in rental neighborhoods. And I say that because you're going to find the largest concentration of properties that don't look occupied or don't look kept up. The second strategy is going to be more for your owner occupied neighborhoods. Because if you go into an area and start talking to tenants, because it's a rental neighborhood, um, obviously, they will not be able to sell you their houses and might have less information about what is going on with the neighboring owners as opposed to the neighboring uh, tenants. Uh, than somebody who was living in a an owner-occupied neighborhood would. So good luck with that firing your boss thing, D. And um, hope to see you down here in Cincinnati soon for some training. Um, it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. And Looking for some questions here at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. I have a question here from Alfred regarding the Dodd-Frank Act. He says, I am a little bit confused about how important the Dodd-Frank Act actually is. I've got one guru who is telling me that it's not that big a deal, that seller financing is not dead, but we'd better change with it or don't do it. And then I have other folks who are saying that it is killing creative financing. Can you give any clarification on this? Well, Fred, it's not that the rules surrounding Dodd-Frank have, quote, killed seller financing. It is still possible to sell properties to homeowners with land contracts, owner-held mortgages, lease options, things like that. It has just gotten really difficult in the sense that there are a lot of hoops that we need to jump through, and not all of those hoops are very clear at this point. And the folks who are saying golly, we got to, you know, get get Dodd-Frank amended, which is something that I personally would very much like to see, are saying that because the law was meant to deal with large banks doing zillions of dollars worth of loans and doing very high loan volumes who may have been cutting corners where it came to qualifying their borrowers. The thing about those 
big banks is that they have lots of lawyers and they have lots of profit coming in from these deals and they have lots of ability to deal with the regulations and your typical small investor who might only do four or five transactions a year does not have that same ability uh, does not have the ability to hire a licensed mortgage originator for every deal that they want to do at you know 1500 to 2500 dollars per file meaning that if somebody goes into the system you're trying to get them qualified you're trying to get them trying to get the thing negotiated and it doesn't work you still pay 1500 bucks that's and that's that's the kind of prices i've been quoted for licensed mortgage originators uh to to close these deals um there's some there's some issues with what does qualified mean i mean the, the law is very very clear that we have to make sure that our borrowers can actually afford the properties can reasonably afford their monthly payments but there's no guidance as to what that means i mean uh, how 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 far do we have to go in making sure that nothing will ever happen that will make them miss a payment uh, we're not given any ratios about what's what should the debt to income be what should the uh, overall uh, debt to income be and so it's 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 confusing to the small operator it is one of these things that you hear about where people say well you know the the cost of compliance is so high that we can't do it and you think how, how could the cost of compliance be that high well the, 1500 bucks plus the chance that you're still doing it wrong and could be penalized up to three years worth of payments that's a pretty high cost of compliance so can it be done absolutely is it way too difficult for the typical small investor to comply with absolutely and uh in any case i don't believe that it was small investors and individuals selling houses to one another that crashed the world financial markets or could ever crash the world financial markets so i'm not quite sure what problems Messrs. Dodd and Frank thought they were solving by including seller finance transactions, which aren't even loans, in that act. So I hope that clarifies it for you somewhat. We need to go to line one and talk to Harry from Cincinnati. Harry, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. I'm on the air. You are on the air. You have a great show. Thank you. Well, thank you. I have a quick question for you. I'm just starting out in this business. I found a house here in Cincinnati. I have talked to the owner by phone, uh, although I was driving by neighborhood. and found this stretched property, well, tall grass, trees overgrown, things like that. In talking to the owner, uh, they tried to sell before uh, and failed because it will not pass inspection. It has a bowed basement foundational wall, mm-hmm. which would be no problem for me to fix at my cost if priced right. But how would you deal with the seller in this particular instance? So this you can't use bank money. It won't. I don't think they'd offer any money on it. Right. Well, what? What do you have any idea what the seller's position of the property is? Does he have an underlying loan on it? Um, no, he does not. This was his father's property. The father's passed away. It's been bounced around as to what to do with it. Mm-hmm. But 
as far as I know, there's no mortgage on it. Mm-hmm. So he has a property that he believes is unsellable because he's tried to sell it, and everyone has said, oh, look at this awful foundation. I'm not buying this property, but you are willing to take on that foundation problem, which might, co- I mean, if you have it done professionally, the, the price tag you're usually going to put on that is somewhere between fifteen and $20,000 to have it done professionally. Right. Uh, but it sounds like you might be able to do that cheaper than fifteen or twenty thousand dollars. Okay. All right. So yeah. what is your goal with this property? Do you want to buy it, fix it and sell it? Do you want to keep it and rent it? What do you want to do with it? I'd want to buy it, fix it and ultimately sell it for probably hold it for a rental. Okay. It's like a, uh, a two bedroom, uh, two bath ranch mm-hmm. over in the Colerain area. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't know if you'd want to discuss what, what price they, they're holding on it, but Sure. It would probably <laughs> go significantly less than probably $40,000. Okay. Probably and, even the twenty. And what do you think the fixed-up value is? Um, I haven't been in it yet. Superficially, it, it needs a lot of work. Um, but but if, you, if, you totally, if you totally fixed it, what would it be worth then? That's a good, that's a good question. And it kind of leads into another question I had. I was toying with getting my real estate license, uh, so I would, I guess, be properly taught how to evaluate the car or the uh, the value of any given property. I guess you do it against other like properties in the area, but I'm not quite sure. Okay, well, there are some resources out there to find uh, after repaired values of properties that do not require you to have a real estate license. And okay. you, you you can't you can't throw 120 hours of education between you and making this offer. So, uh, right. I would I would I would suggest that you um, dig up one of those resources. Are you a member of the Real Estate Investors Association? No, but I tried. I guess um, the last meeting was beginning of July, which was canceled because of the holiday. Okay. Well, there's there's a meeting net, not tomorrow, but a week from Thursday. Okay. And you need to you need to come there and you need to ask you need to ask people what they are using as resources because it's not something that I can sit here and recommend on the air on public radio. But y- you don't you don't you really don't need to have a uh a real estate license to find the value of properties or even to learn how to find the value of properties. Uh you could Does of course hmm? Does it help? Um, there's one in in Ohio. There is one class that is in the in the set of classes that is devoted to appraisal. The text for that class is available in any bookstore on the planet. Like you <laughs> walk into any bookstore and okay. and ask them for uh, the uh, the the appraisal book that is required as part of the realtor training, and they will sell it to you for like you know under twenty bucks. Okay. So you can you can you can certainly go through that, and that's actually really more than you need. I mean, it goes pretty in depth about things that you don't end up running across in real life. But uh, yeah, go get okay. the book. I mean, you can get that this evening, okay? And uh, what, yes, you are going to compare it to other properties in the same area that have sold after they were fixed up, and that's the key thing because you can mm-hmm. go you can go on some of these free websites that I'm sure you're aware of. And see sales that have happened in the area over the course of the last yeah. six months, year, or whatever, 
and a lot of those sales will, especially in an area like Colerain, will have been short sales or bank-owned properties. Those don't count. What okay. you're what you're looking for is the sales where somebody did fix up the property and resold it, or maybe uh, someone had lived in it and kept it up real nicely and sold it. You're not looking for the ones that sold in distress condition like this one did. You're going to start just, with you're going to start with that number. So let's say, and I don't Colerain's huge. So there's 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 properties in Colerain with after repaired values anywhere from fifty five to two fifty five. But let's let's just say it's. I can tell you where it is. Oh. Uh, I I don't know what I don't know what that street by street so and and I and I wouldn't say it over the air just because I wouldn't want anybody driving up that street and going where's that guy's house that he saw that was such a good deal <laughs> so um, so let let's say it's a hundred thousand dollar house and okay. you've 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 figured out what else it needs to fix it up other than that foundation issue and the foundation issue and added up those costs. You really want to be buying it at somewhere between 60 and 70% of the fixed up value less those repairs. So if it's a $100,000 house, you're going to want to be around 70 minus the repair costs, and, and that's kind of your maximum allowable offer. Now, in terms of how, how do you go about buying it, if he does not owe anything, and if you're going to need to borrow additional money to do the work... What you probably want to do, and I'm, I'm going to tell you this, and then I'm going to I'm going to send you off to Rhea and your attorney to actually write it up because you you don't want this isn't okay. like a contract you want to try and write up yourself. Is you probably want him to carry payments for the purchase price, so that you can then get a private second mortgage for the repair costs. Okay. So let, let's say that your your target price with him is thirty, just to pick a number out of the air. You might say to him, mm-hmm. "Listen, I want to. What I want to do is I want to pay. Th- I want to pay you three hundred dollars a month for a hundred months, equaling thirty thousand dollars. I don't want to make you any payments for the first six months because you're not getting any payments right now, and I'm gonna. It's gonna take me that six months to get it up and running so that I can put someone in there and get some income. And then you're uh-huh. going to yes, and then you, yeah, they're not. It's not. It's not like working with a bank. If that, right. works, if that works for him and it works for for you, that's perfectly legal. So then you're going to find somebody who wants to invest some IRA money or some you know funds they have that are out there you know sitting in a bank account at one percent, and you're going to offer them maybe six percent, eight percent interest for a rehab loan, which would be which would take uh, the form of a second mortgage on that property. And you want to make sure that the combined two payments are not excessive, so that when you do rent it, you can make some money on it. Okay, but I right. think is that considered hard money. Uh, there is such thing as hard money, at, and and you could certainly you could certainly if the if the deal makes sense, you can certainly just get a hard money loan for the entire amount. Thus, paying but that's it. not what you were referring to, right? Because hard the thing about hard money is typically you're not going to be able to borrow it for more than a year to two years. That's that's the term okay. on a hard money loan, and if you want to hold it and rent it for five years, it's just not going to work for you unless you can buy it with the hard money, fix it up, get it rented, and then refinance it with something like a conventional loan in the next year or two. Okay. Well, which way would you do it? I would negotiate seller financing. I would get okay. a private loan at, at at probably closer to 6 or 8% interest, not 15, uh, as, the, as the rehab money. And I would just make sure that the payments and terms were such that when I got it fixed and rented, I would still be making cash flow after my taxes, after my insurance, after my maintenance, all that sort of stuff. I see perfectly what you're doing. Great advice. 
I have one last question, if you have time. Mm-hmm. Right Where on. is the meeting? This, uh, this, not this Thursday, but this coming Thursday. It is at the corner of Reading and Seymour in the Bond Hill Roselawn area. There used to be a uh, shopping center there called Swift and Commons and then called Jordan Crossing and now called a big flat hole in the ground. But at the end of that lot, there is the uh, Community Action Agency building with the library, and that's where the meeting is. Yes, yes, yes. I know exactly where it is. <laughs> yes, and you can always... It's, it's about... Say that again? I'm sorry, go ahead. About what time is that? Uh, the early meeting. meeting starts at 6. The main meeting, which is Pete Fortunato, who is awesome, by the way, and talks about the kind of thing that we were just talking about, uh, is at 7.30. And you can always get okay. information on the meetings, who the guests are, and so on, at CincinnatiRia.com. Great. Being I won't hold you up anymore. Thank you so very much for all the information. You're great. The information is great. And will you be there Thursday? I absolutely will. I'll see you there. Thank you so very much. Excellent. Thank you for your call, Harry. You've been listening. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we will answer your question at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. And we are... Uh, taking questions at askvina at gmail.com or at 877-772-9658. Getting way to the end of the show here, though. So if you send in your question via email and it doesn't get answered until next month, don't be uh, too terribly surprised because we uh, sometimes get these things in after the end of the program. Uh, Let's see. Question here. Okay. (laughs) Wow. And here we are in the last five minutes of the show. If you were to start all over again with no money, what would you do in this market? (laughs) Oh, that is a that is a really good question. And I have to tell you, uh, Darren, it's a question that I think every full-time real estate investor has asked themselves at least once in the past six years, like if it all went away and I had to start all over again, what would I do and what would I do differently? In fact, I think that may be a question that real estate entrepreneurs throughout history have asked because my father was famous for saying that if he had to that it took him 20 years to make his first million dollars and that if it was all taken away and he had to start all over again, it would only take him two years to make his next million dollars. But uh, I'm going to assume that by start all over again, you mean like no money, no connections, no, uh, you know, no special knowledge of people, places, or things, and uh, I will give you a couple of answers to that that are sort of from from things that I look back on and think, wow, I wish I'd done that differently. Uh, the number one thing, Darren, is that I would start collecting rental properties that I could pay off relatively quickly as soon as I could. Uh, When I started in real estate in my early 20s, I was in no way focused on owning rental properties. In fact, it would be safe to say that I was allergic to owning rental properties because I grew up in a family where 
Uh, everybody was a landlord and they were typical mom and pop landlords that did everything themselves and took the calls at 2 a.m. about the leaky roofs and then ran out at 2 a.m. to put a tarp on the roof. And that did not appeal to me. Now with, um, oh, and, and of course got bank loans that were 30-year loans, which meant that they basically didn't make any money on those properties uh, for a very long, long time. Uh, now from the perspective of having owned various sorts of rental properties in various sorts of areas, what I wish I had done when I was first starting was kept my eyes open for owner finance possibilities or subject to possibilities or even lease option possibilities on houses that were in good school systems that were three or four bedroom houses that were uh, had desirable amenities, you know, had a garage, had a fenced yard, that sort of thing that I could pay off in five to 10 years. So in other words, owner financing, high payments for five to 10 years, but after five to 10 years uh, have completely paid off properties. Because um, if you do the math on what you need to survive well on passive income, it's probably not that much money every month. If, if, you, if you had truly passive income, 5000 a month without working, would, would that be enough to, to, you know, pay your bills and keep you happy and keep you in whatever hobbies you like and, you know, be asked for the car and all that kind of stuff? That would be the very first thing that I would do, would be start looking for those opportunities, not that I could buy. And I, that's only, you know, 5000 a month. That's, what, 10 paid off properties that rent for 1000 bucks a month? in good school systems. And in 10 years, I would have those 10 properties and I would, uh, I would, I would truly be financially independent in the sense of not even having to get up in the morning and find another deal. Now that doesn't mean I wouldn't get up in the morning and find another deal. It just means that, that there would always be that sort of background level of income coming in. The other thing that I would make absolutely sure that I did if I was starting all over like that is that I would not live off of any income that those properties were generating. In fact, I would bank all of that income because something that was never um, somehow impressed upon me uh, during my childhood years growing up in the real estate investing business was that it does cost money to own properties. And even when you have fully stabilized a property, even when you bought it and put a new roof on and put new windows in, put a new kitchen and a new bath in, new water heater, new furnace, etc., cetera, uh, things will break. Uh, properties will go vacant. Sometimes the tenants will trash them even when you thought that you had done a good job screening that tenant. And you will always need to have money in reserve to take care of those sorts of things. And I have seen a lot of people over the years who had fairly big rental businesses that had that uh, went south and they lost all of their rentals because of lack of reserves. So that's that's kind of, you know, real big picture. And it's hard to look at the real big picture when you are first starting and thinking, how do I how do I support myself? What do I what do I do in the meantime while these properties are paying off and I'm not spending any of the money from them? And the answer is I would do something that generated cash, uh, probably wholesale properties, um, possibly retail some once the once the wholesaling business was going well enough that I had some cash to make sure that I had the money to 
more than cover any repair and holding costs that I have, that I had. And uh, one thing that I did do that I'm very glad I did that a lot of people don't do today is learn about creative financing. Learn how to do deals with both buyers and sellers that don't require banks. Because the thing that we have learned in spades in the last six years is that bank money will not always be there and that the banks make the rules so that sometimes you might be qualified and other times, even though you haven't changed, you might not be able to get any money from traditional lenders. And that 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 does go in cycles and what the banks are offering goes in cycles. When I first started investing in real estate in the late 80s, bank financing was not horribly hard to get, but it was 15 and a half percent interest and it was adjustable rate. So it wasn't attractive, which is why I learned creative finance early on. And I would suggest that you do the same. Thank you very much for your question, Darren, and to all the folks who asked questions today. You've been listening to Real Life Real Real Estate Investing. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.